they were under heavy pressure, intense criticism, stiff competition, and frustrating setbacks. But that didn't matter. First things were still first things. Welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. You know, there is so much to admire about Wilbur and Orville Wright. Their ingenuity, their determination, their humility, their perseverance, their brilliance. But today, I'm thinking about their patience, their self-control, particularly in 1908. Now, those of you who know your history might be saying, hey, wait a minute, their first flight was December 17, 1903, Kitty Hawk, 12 seconds, 120 feet. True, and that, as David McCullough notes in The Wright Brothers, his New York Times best-selling biography of the Flyers, was proof enough of their patience and perseverance. McCullough writes this, he said, it had taken four years. They had endured violent storms, accidents, one disappointment after another, public indifference and ridicule, and clouds of demon mosquitoes that pestered them there at Kitty Hawk. To get to and from their remote sand dune testing ground, they had made five round trips from Dayton, a total of 7,000 miles by train, all to fly a little more than a half a mile. Despite that, the Wright brothers were not content to satisfy themselves with the first flights. They wanted to conquer the air, and that meant there was much more work to be completed. And now, 1908, almost five years from that first flight, they're further into development of their flying machine. Now, on two occasions, they had tried to take their idea to the U.S. government, but they were rebuffed both times. So they turned to the French, who were going to pay them $350,000 for their flyer once they made a public demonstration. And then, realizing the Wright brothers were legit, the U.S. government gets interested. So it's 1908, and both France and the U.S. want a piece of the action. And what do Wilbur and Orville do? I find it fascinating. Rather than dart off to Washington and France, they go to Kitty Hawk to practice. You see, at this point, neither had flown a plane for two and a half years, not since the fall of 1905. Now, after a little practice in Kitty Hawk and a spectacular plane crash that destroyed one of their flyers, they're ready. And McCullough writes this, Two days later, May 16, 1908, Wilbur was on his way again. It was agreed he would go to France to proceed with the required demonstrations there and that Orville would do the same in Washington. So Wilbur arrives in Paris on May 29, 1908. And to appreciate what he does next when he arrives, we need to understand the context. I want you to think about this. First, there's this incredible competition. You see, the Wright brothers, although the first flyers were not the only flyers, many people were vying for flight supremacy. And McCullough notes that earlier in 1908, the Frenchman Henri Farman had flown for two minutes and had even taken a passenger up in the air. And others 
were putting on flight demonstrations as well. So you've got competition, and then you've got the French scorn. I mean, French aviation experts felt that France was clearly in the lead when it came to the flying machine. Archdeacon of the Air Club of France said, You know, the famous Wright brothers may today claim all they wish, if it is true, and I doubt it more and more, that they were the first to fly through the air. They will not have the glory before history. <laughs> Pretty strong words. In addition to that, one famous French flying magazine, as you'll hear McCullough share in a moment, published a photograph of the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk with this caption, Its appearance seems quite dubious, and one finds in it every element of a fabrication. Not especially well done, moreover. So you've got competition, you've got French scorn, and then there were the setbacks. You know, when Wilbur arrived in France safe and sound, the same could not be said of his plane. Some careless custom officials almost ruined it. McCullough said a dozen or more ribs were broken, one wing ruined, the cloth torn in countless places. Everything was a tangled mess. Radiators were smashed, propeller axles broken, coils badly turned up, essential wires, seats, nuts and bolts, all missing. Competition, French scorn, setbacks, and then the costs. Up to this point, the Wright brothers had funded their efforts out of their own pockets. So Wilbur arrives in France, and you would think that there is this tremendous pressure to perform, to show the world that they were indeed legitimate, and to win the contracts for the French and the U.S. And one would think that Wilbur would be all about, hurry, 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 we've got to get to a field where we can validate our flying machine and show the world that we are the flyers we profess to be. But that's not what he does. Listen as McCullough narrates the first thing Wilbur Wright does upon arriving in France. He reached Paris on May 29, and for the next week he and Hartberg were on the move, touring possible sites for the public demonstrations, including Fontainebleau and Vitry, but found nothing suitable. The French press, aware of Wilbur's return, had a tendency to be hostile, he reported to Orville, but to almost anyone else it would have seemed considerably more than a tendency. The popular L'Illustration, as an example, ran a heavily retouched photograph of the flyer taken at Kitty Hawk, saying its appearance seems quite dubious, and one finds in it every element of a fabrication, not especially well done, moreover. Further, there was a resurgence of popular enthusiasm over French aviators and their daring feats. Earlier in the year, Henri Farman had flown for nearly two minutes, and that spring at the end of May, Farman made news when he took a passenger up for a ride. As Wilbur reported to Orville, Farman and Delagrange were also putting on demonstrations elsewhere in Europe, and with much success. As for themselves, Wilbur wrote, the first thing is to get some practice and make some demonstrations. Then let the future be what it may. The first thing is to get some practice. When I heard that, I said to myself, wow, what self-control. You know, McCullough quotes one observer who said, neither the impatience of waiting crowds, nor the sneers of rivals, nor the pressure 
of financial conditions not always easy could induce him to hurry over any difficulty before he had done everything in his power to understand and overcome it. That's powerful stuff. You see, demands and deadlines, expectations and our own reputations, the fear of failure and the desire to achieve can all hurry our efforts. And what we may get or done, the result may not be the quality we ultimately need and want. And Wilbur Wright understood that, so he would not be hurried. What did he say? The first thing is to get some practice. You know, God says, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. That's from Proverbs 16.32. And then in Proverbs 19.11, God says, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. I love this. Wilbur Wright said, say and think what you want. I've got to practice. It's of first importance. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. Wilbur Wright understood that hurry destroys first things. And for him, the first thing was to practice. So I'm asking myself, where is hurry destroying first things? How about you? Try this. Fill in the blank. The first thing is to, what would you put in that blank? I can tell you this, hurry will upset that effort. It will cause you to skip it, to bypass the time you need to take, or to increase your pace to an unhealthy level. Patience, on the other hand, is going to protect that commitment. Wilbur Wright was patient and he flew. And so will you if you take the time for first things. Now, the reality of this truth hit home to me. It's 4.06 a.m., and I've been working on this podcast for a while already, and I think it's quite apropos that it's on my walk number 200, which is a definite milestone for me. And that got me thinking about all the other things the Lord has helped me to get done by use of his first things first principles. You know, I walk most every morning. I've been keeping track of it since 2014, and I recently hit mile 8,000. That's the first things. I read the Bible through each year in a different translation. I've been doing it for a few years. First things. Recently, Shannon and I enjoyed all our kids and grands at our home in Arkansas, 36 of us under one roof for a week. We did that for the fourth year in a row first things. Right now, I'm driving a 1966 Ford Econoline van. We call it the Grand Hauler, the Green Machine, that a few years back I found sitting on the side of the road. And at that point, it hadn't been running for at least three years. And today, it is first things. And today, you're hearing podcast number 200. And I'm thinking, wow, this podcast, it started 
as a way to process what I'm reading, and it grew into a means of helping others capture readings, aha moments. First things. You know, Wilbur Wright said, the first thing is to get some practice. Let me say it again. Hurry kills first things. Carl Jung said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. That's good stuff. Hurry will cause you to skip first things, to bypass the time you need to take, or to increase your pace to an unhealthy level. Patience, on the other hand, will protect that commitment. Wilbur was patient and he flew. And so will you if you take the time for first things. And that's my thought on my walk with David McCullough and the Wright brothers. And now my question for you is, what will you do with that thought on your walk through life today? <music>